All right, this morning we will be finishing up the seven letters to the seven churches that Jesus gave in the first part of Revelation. Uh, Next week we'll be going, I've been saying, uh, we're taking our time through these letters, but next week we're going to be increasing our our pace for sure. We're going to be doing all of, try, all of chapter four next week. But as we do this and we think about these letters, you know, remember that Jesus is giving these letters, they're actual letters in real time to seven distinct churches in the first century facing situations that needed a real-time Jesus and real-time encouragement in order for them uh, to combat uh, uh, false teaching, malaise, complacency, and also to remind them that this is not our home. We are living for that day when Jesus will return and carry us to himself in the very presence of God in heaven where we, will, we have some clues in these letters. We will reign with him. Don't know what that's going to be like, but that's what he's telling us. Now, these seven messages, as they were written to these churches and these believers in these churches in the first century, they're also understood to be for every church and every Christian in every age. So that's why we put ourselves uh, before the Lord and say, okay, Jesus, what do you want to teach me about these letters? And, and maybe we see that uh, these letters can represent seasons of church life, but seasons of the Christian life, where things are just happening in particular ways, and we find ourselves with the ups and downs. We find ourselves sometimes where faith is just easy to come by in our lives, like, wow, I just I believe in God for big stuff and, 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 and there's fruitfulness to that faithfulness and, I mean, God is just showing up and our prayers are huge. There are other seasons when we're going, I can't remember the last time I picked up my Bible because this life has just been crazy and it's been weighing me down. Churches go through seasons. Christians go through seasons. And these messages are for Christians in every age that Jesus wants to remind us to overcome. That's what he's been telling, to overcome the one who overcomes, the one who conquers, the one who endures is for the glory of God and for our good. Just a quick recap before we read the final letter. Uh, remember, you can think of these are seasons of the Christian life. In Ephesus, they're, they're standing strong in doctrine, but whether they've lost their first love, they've lost the passion to go after Jesus with everything they are. And then in Smyrna, there's no rebuke to to the Smyrnian church, but they're standing in faith and and all of life is giving away. They've watched one of their own die. Persecution is there, but they're standing strong in the faith. And then Pergamum, not thinking very well. They're, they're, They're facing a battle so much in front of them that they didn't pay attention to what was coming from the side. And that's that began to... They left it unguarded and and led to compromise. In Thyatira, you have uh, the battle of uh, competing allegiances. Thyatira was the place you had all the the work guilds, and you had to be part of the work guilds in order to support life, and not being a part of them was not just a a financial thing. It was a social thing. It was all-encompassing, and they figured out this way to have a relationship with Jesus and still be in these guilds, but the guilds were all devoted to false gods and idol worship. Jesus says, no, there's only one allegiance that matters, and he wins. Then in Sardis, remember, they had a lot of motion of Christianity, but Jesus said they were dead. 
They didn't have the power of the Spirit alive, working with them. And then a couple weeks ago, we looked at Philadelphia with the open door. It's a, a small church, but Jesus is saying it's a small church to, that can do great things if you obey. And he provides that open door. He will accomplish his will, no matter what size the church, no matter what uh, influence we might think we have in our personal lives. Jesus is looking to further his kingdom through our lives and through the small conversations that we have with others. And then this morning, we'll look at Laodicea. It's a famous, I think, maybe the, the most famous of the letters because of how uh, Jesus is, is telling them, you're lukewarm, and I will spit you out of my mouth. Serious. But in Laodicea, there is a, there's a self-reliance and a self-sufficiency that's occurring in the believers in the church and they've lost the element of a radical faith in God, a radical trust and dependence upon him. So let's look at God's word, verses 14 through 22. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. And white garments so that you may clothe yourself in the shame of your nakedness and may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. Also, as I conquered and sat down with my father on his throne, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Holy Spirit, we ask for ears to hear what you're saying to us. We ask for faith to respond. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, we've observed uh, in most of the churches, except Smyrna and Philadelphia, uh, Smyrna and Philadelphia had no rebuke from the Lord. But all these churches in some way began to reflect the culture in which they were rather than stand as a lamppost of Jesus' glory that would shine into a dark culture. The church in Laodicea was also found reflecting its surroundings. And out of all the letters, I must say, this one in preparation um, has, has sat differently in me because I think what Jesus addresses in the self-sufficiency of the Laodicean church, I think is our battle in our culture on the North Shore. Because we, we're surrounded by people and we are people that have means and can get things done. I noticed that when we, we moved over here in 2012 uh, to, to start the church from across the lake, and we lived through Katrina across the lake and saw the utter devastation, but really the, the helpless and hopelessness of so many people who couldn't do anything. 
We bought our house uh, a couple days before Hurricane Isaac came through. And in our neighborhood, there was we have some creeks that joined to the, to the, the Chifuncta River. And so the, the river swelled, flooded houses. And what struck me immediately was how fast everything got put back together. I'm thinking, wow, great opportunity to serve like we did for Katrina and go in and help people in their houses. Nobody asked for help. Everybody just did it. And I thought, whoa, I watched it happen with Ida in the fall. Trees through houses, all of a sudden, trees are gone and tarp, and then roofs are replaced. And now, now just a, what, we're seven months later? Some of those houses look like nothing ever happened. That's getting stuff done. See, because we live around people that even, even if they don't have the means, they live like they have the means because that's what they really want. And so there's this weird undercurrent, I think, that we have in our culture to live a particular way. And as believers, and and my pastoral concern is that we would not get so comfortable. I'm going to talk in a little while. Money's not the issue. Our complacency with what we can provide for ourselves rather than depend upon Jesus for everything we are. And I think that's the warning. There's not a direct correlation between us and Laodicea, but I think there's a warning in there that says, Jesus is saying, trust me. Trust me with everything. Trust me. Jesus was not preeminent in the lives of the Laodicean believers. And our mission is clear. We're reminded of that. Jesus desires our complete dependence in order to affect the culture around us. Listen, he hasn't returned yet because he wants more people in the kingdom. And he calls us as his disciples to tell others about him so they'll get saved and be with him in heaven. So every day that Jesus does not return is another opportunity for his church to shine bright so others will see. And maybe they'll come to Christ and repent of their sins and trust him with their eternity as well. That's why we're here. He wants us to affect the culture around us. And that's not, uh, we, we hope and pray that would be something to, you know, I remember studying about the great, the first and second great awakenings and uh, Jonathan Edwards up in Massachusetts. They, they had bars closing because of everything that was happening. So many people were turning their lives to the Lord. Nobody was going to the bars anymore because they found such a satisfaction in Jesus that they said, we don't need that. No, I hope. Oh man, no big I thought every church has that type of effect on the culture. But what we're talking about is have an effect on your street with the unbelievers that are around you on your street, in your workplace, and be able to have conversations that sow into uh, gospel seeds and then gospel watering perhaps and watch what God does. That's the mission. That's the real-time mission that we're on as believers He's calling us, he's called to the Laodicean believers, but he's calling to us, church. He's calling us to a deeper faith and fellowship with him. He wants us to go deeper with him. So we do shine bright as his glory. He reminds with this image in in verse 14, he's reminding the church of who he is. And this image, he, he is the amen of God, he says. The words of the amen. Now we can... uh 
misunderstand or lose the impact of the word amen, but it's not just a concluding word on a prayer. It's not just a, I feel good about a song, amen. What are we really saying with that? It comes from Isaiah 65 or 16. Jesus is quoting that. Where, where he says, so that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. That's literally, in Hebrew, the God of the amen. So what does this mean? It's vich, and shall swear by the God of truth, the God of the amen. Daryl Johnson in his commentary helps us understand this. He says, in Hebrew thought, saying amen is a way of acknowledging that something is valid and binding. So when we say amen in prayer... We're saying a whole lot more than, I agree with you. That was a good point. We're saying, no, what you have said is the truth about God. And my amen says, oh, that is reality. That's firm. Johnson continues, saying amen is a way of saying that something is utterly trustworthy, a foundation upon which to build. Jesus says he is the amen. He is the utterly trustworthy foundation of life. And he's remind. thank you, <laughs> he's reminding, I love preaching with him, bring it more. We, we are the ones who are, when we say amen, we are, oh, we are thinking about Jesus with that amen. Because everything that we're looking to do, it's all about him. And he goes on and says, I am the faithful and the true witness. This is who Jesus is in the other letters he told the church, what he did and what he does. This one he's saying, this is who I am. I am faithful. I am true. Remember in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. He is the witness of the living God, and he is the witness to the power of God over death. And that's why he is the beginning of God's creation. And this beginning concept is not, it's not just, he's, the, he's number one. It is there, but it's more than that. It's more than just being one. He's the complete first. He doesn't have to be improved upon. He's not just a prototype of God's creation. He is the archetype, the overarching everything of God's creation. He is the beginning and the end, and he's the reason for it all. We're reminded of that in Colossians 1, 15 through 18. Maybe I love this. Maybe I, this... This letter sticks out to me because just verse 18 about him being preeminent in all things is just who we are. It's, it's, it's what we want as a church. But look, the Apostle Paul tells the Colossians, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. See how this is... This is the archetype. He's big. He's everything. And he's the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now, the Laodicean church probably sang these verses as a hymn. They were in close proximity with the church in Colossae, with the letter of Colossians is written to, as well as another city called Heropolis. So they all sang this. Jesus is reminding this church of his preeminence because he was not first in their hearts. They were going after counterfeits. They were going after a security that was, was less than Jesus. So what, what is the city of Laodicea? It sat in a valley of the Lycus River with Colossae, which is 10 miles up the river, and Heropolis, which is 6 miles across the Lycus River. 
Epaphras was probably from Laodicea. And he started this church. He pastored this church, Colossae, and Hierapolis. Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote a letter to the Laodicean church. We don't have it. It's not, if we did, it would be part of the New Testament uh, Bible that we have. But remember, he tells the Colossians, hey, have this letter read in Laodicea and Hierapolis. And the letter I wrote to Laodicea, make sure you read that too. All of these letters were meant to circulate in that day. But the city of Laodicea had a very strong banking center. It was so strong that after an earthquake, 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 hmm, earthquake in 60 AD, the emperor of Rome usually offers to help. Hey, I can help you rebuild. I'll give you some money to help you rebuild. They looked at the emperor and said, no, we got it. And they rebuilt the city themselves. They had wealth. They were also a promoting, uh, a prominent in the clothing manufacturing. They came up with this black wool, a glossy black wool that you couldn't find anywhere else. And it was rare enough that everybody wanted that. It was the Michael Kors, the Louis Vuitton. It was like they had this black glossy wool. Nobody else can have it. We got it. They were also a leader in ophthalmology, eye care. They created a salve that was said to heal blindness. Now, these three things, wealth, clothing, eyesight, these are the very same things that Jesus is going to address with the believers there because they began to... Rep- the church was slipping into rep- uh, reflecting the culture. Hey, I'm rich. Don't need anything. We got the finest clothes. We're good. We look good. And then we see everything very clearly. Jesus says, uh, hold on a second. And all, all these other letters you see, there's an encouragement. So what is the church doing well? Just like Sardis, they're not doing anything well. There's nothing that Jesus is encouraging with this. That's serious. The church is in urgent need of repentance in order to be restored to the life-giving waters that the Spirit provides. Now, there is a clue. I... I I just love this. Verse 19, look at that. Those whom I love. That's encouraging for the church. They're not doing anything that's bringing encouragement. Here's the encouragement that Jesus gives the church. I love you. Isn't that awesome? No matter what season of life we're going through, we feel most miserable and away from the Lord. He still comes to us and says, I love you. So if there is a bit of encouragement there, but he's got some things that they need to pay attention to. He wants to exhort them. And he exhorts them because there is a lukewarm nausea happening that they are comfortable with. The gag reflex stop working in their spiritual lives and things are not going right. Now we have to understand the surroundings of Laodicea and understand why Jesus is referencing this hot or cold, cold and hot. This is not... Jesus preferring, look, I'd rather you just be cold and hard-hearted rather than be toward me, rather than be lukewarm toward me. That's not what Jesus is saying. Here's how it happened. Laodicea did not have a water source of its own. It had to import all the water. Colossae, 10 miles up the river, had very cold, refreshing streams that came from mountains. Heropolis, six miles across the river, had hot springs, mineral springs, healing. So what they did, they built the aqueducts and they had the water, the cold water from Colossae came downriver, the hot water from Heropolis came across the river, and by the time it got to Laodicea, it wasn't hot or cold anymore. It was lukewarm. 
But from Hierapolis, it would pass over this huge cliff that had calcium carbonate. And calcium carbonate in the water made the water unbearable to drink. So when people visited, they would throw up if they tried to drink the water. Oh, this is refreshing. And they'd vomit. Now, Jesus is saying, he's pointing out to them. That really, what he's pointing out is this. You have lost your mission, church. You are stagnant in your mission. You're not providing the cold, refreshing water to the spiritually weary. And you're not providing the hot, mineral water to those who are spiritually wounded. You've lost your mission, church. And Jesus says this, because you've lost your mission, I'm nauseated. I'm going to vomit you out. Literal word. I'm going to vomit you, not just spit. No, it's a reflex. Now, Jesus is using some harsh language, right? We usually don't expect this kind of stuff from Jesus. But Jesus is trying to convey the seriousness of the situation because they are complacent in their self-sufficiency, in their self-reliance. I'm rich. I've prospered. I don't need anything. Take heed. If a man stands, lest he fall. If a man thinks he stands, lest he fall. Jesus is, is coming to them with an urgency. They were off mission. Their affluence had made them sufficient to, to just preserve their lives rather than promote his preeminence. And Jesus means what he says. He's not using hyperbole. Their self-trust, their self-reliance, their self-sufficiency was putrid to him. We need to see the urgency of Jesus' call to them and understand, Jesus, I, I, want, I want to be under your microscope. It's a loving microscope. But Jesus, am I... Am I dependent upon myself in such ways that it, it, it causes you to respond to me? They were lulled into complacency by their affluence, by their ability to get things done. Maybe it wasn't a self-sufficiency because they were, had a lot of money. Maybe it was just they were, they were resourceful. They could just do things. I got to make that. We, we, we applaud people like that. Oh, wow, you found a way to get that done. Good for you. We applaud success stories of, of nothing to, to a lot. And wow, you worked hard to get there. Culture does that and, and it slips in. It's in the water that we drink. It slips in. But like I said earlier, money is not the issue with any Christian. Love of money is. Money is not the root of all sorts of evils. The love of money is the roots of all sorts. The root of all sorts of evils. Listen, money is to be used. Money is not to be trusted in. Money is God's blessing to provide for our needs. But money is not a reason to turn away from our, our need for him. Money is to be used to further God's kingdom, not build up our personal kingdoms. Money, we need to be careful not to derive our security from what we get from money. This this week in our men's training, we went over the topic of giving and how appropriate that the Lord lines these things up for us. And we were reminded as we discussed together that we are to give freely and cheerfully and think through it to prepare for it. And what we discussed as we met is that's, it's, a, it's a powerful effect when we give to the Lord, give to the, the first fruits of it. It's just, it's a powerful, listen, it releases our hands on the temple to join our hearts to the eternal. 
And so it, we, we're to give, to build his kingdom. I've been working through, my wife is way ahead of me in this, but I picked up Dane Ortland's book, um, In Him I Take Refuge, where Dane Ortland went through, and it's, it's all the Psalms, it's 150 meditations on the Psalms, but he just does one meditation per Psalm. And this past week in my devotional time, I came across just a question he asked, and it just, it hit me about how we look at security from money. He said, do you desire God above a $10 million inheritance and all it could provide? It just caught me. I was like, wow, that's a lot of money. My kids would be taken care of. Wow. All right, do we want God more than that? Or are we looking for the, the comfort and security that having that would provide for us? It just struck me. Listen, self-sufficiency leads to self-false awareness. <laughs> uh, false self-awareness, sorry. The Laodicean believers didn't understand who they were anymore. They have a false self-awareness in saying, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. These are bold statements. They didn't even realize, you're not supposed to say those things out loud. Keep it to yourself. You think that. And we might not be saying those things out loud, but we can live like it. We can live like, no, I don't need anything. I got it. We're good. Listen, church, we're always in need of God. We always need him. We never escape our need. We can never say we need nothing. The people we live with act, live around in our culture. They act as if they don't need anything, but... We are the ones to shine a light into our own need and not to fall for the empty deceit of the lie that we got everything. Good. I don't need anything. We're all good. And maybe the Lord would use us to be cool and refreshing waters for them. The believers in Laodicea were running on empty fumes of pride, thinking they had a full tank, but they had nothing. They lacked the the pure fuel fire of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus comes to them with the, here's your true state of affairs. You are wretched. You are pitiable. You, you don't recognize the difference. You're saying this, but you're the opposite. He says, you're poor. You're not rich, you're poor. You're blind. You think you see clearly. I've prospered. No, you're blind. He says, you're naked. You think you need nothing, but you need clothes and spirit, the Spirit to clothe you. They were, these things are the opposite of who they thought they were in their pride. They boasted of sufficiency while being spiritually poor. You know, all of us in our lives just need to be aware of the blind spots that we have. You're driving along, supposed to check your blind spots. Just the, the aspects of your life you don't see carefully because you're just focused on what's ahead or in your periphery you're focused on that in our spiritual lives we're focused on a periphery but there's some things outlying the flank that is left unguarded and that's it's part of the reason we need fellowship with other believers not not to have this intense all right it's time to figure out the blind spots so we can get to them clear them all up nobody wants to live out drill sergeant christianity I don't want that, and we run from it. There's a select few that enjoy it. They might not have many friends. <laughs> they find one another, perhaps. But here's what we do. 
We care. And we say, you know what? Have you thought about this? And you know, you've mentioned this several different times. You have to meet, walk with and meet with people long enough to where we hear the same thing sometimes. It's like, hey, um, I don't, you've said that several times. It's been a a prayer request of yours perhaps several times. I, I, I just don't hear faith coming from that. Or I hear, I hear you blaming others for, is there something maybe you need to pay attention to? We care with questions. Remember, Jesus, these whom I love, I, repu- I reprove and discipline, we're coming alongside Jesus' work. And we're shining a lot of grace in a moment where we don't want to break people down. We want to build them up in Christ. And we do that by walking together. So we're... We need to be aware of our blind spots. Lay out us and believers. They, didn't, they weren't aware of their blind spots. But Jesus gives them true investment principles here. He says, buy gold refined by fire. I think of 1 Peter. Remember when 1 Peter, uh, the Apostle Peter says, hey, uh, these trials that are happening, what, what are they for? They're for your faith to be refined as gold in a furnace. More precious than gold is your faith. So what Jesus calling them to? Come, get faith from me, not faith in yourselves. And he says in Isaiah 55, verse 1, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. What's always struck me about that, if I don't have any money, how do I buy? It's not the transaction we're looking for. Jesus says, here's my transaction. The heavenly transaction is you come to me by faith. You have everything you want because you have God. You have him there. He says, buy white garments to cover your shame. You're going after this black wool thing. You think you're clothed and you look good. That's outward appearance, but on the inside, there's suffering happening. He says, come get white garments, a reference to the righteousness that we have in Christ. So Jesus, come get faith and come get a true righteousness that doesn't just cover shame. It removes shame because it covers us with Jesus' righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's a clothing term. We might become that righteousness and be represented by Jesus before God, not by our, our effort or our works or our wisdom. We're represented by Jesus. So come, get faith, get righteousness, and also get knowledge, salve for your... Uh, the, the, get, get this anointing ointment for your eyes that you think you have in a natural way, but it just makes you blind by putting on the culture cell. No, come, come to me and get a true knowledge of Jesus. See, when we see Jesus correctly, church, we see ourselves correctly. A lot of times we're looking at ourselves and we're bringing that to Jesus and asking him to change us. Rather than look at Jesus and say, who are you? And through your perspective of me, how do I need to see myself? Because that's what he's changing by faith. For faith. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. The Apostle Paul says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Our knowledge of Jesus provides the wisdom and the discernment to live with. So we're trying to figure out what decision to do or, or decision to make. We look at Jesus. Now, we don't necessarily have this, I want you to do this. God sometimes provides that type of clarity 
in our lives. Most of the time it's, God, I don't know what to do. And God is saying, just be with me. Trust me. Go deeper with me because that's your greatest need. The greatest need is not to get an answer. The greatest need is to see the answer of Jesus. And he tells them, verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Jesus' discipline is his protection of the spirit that he's made to dwell in us. He yearns for the Spirit's activity in our lives. And he comes to us and says, in my love, he, he reproves. And go back and, and read Hebrews 12 and see that happens. Those who are sons, he disciplines, he reproves. Why? So we understand his love. And more than that, we experience his love in ever-increasing ways. Jesus' love is a pure and jealous love to preserve our fellowship with him. And our repentance opens the door to him. Knowing that he's there, he says, I stand at the door and knock. Knowing that he's there, we should be zealous to open it, right? But things come in the way. So we need to let him in. Here's the promise. Here's where the church needs to look. He's right at the door. He's standing at the door, knocking. Now, when... when I was in college. We had this, I don't know, we, as college students were thinking, wow, we've just seen something really cool about Jesus and it's changing things. We call Jesus the consummate gentleman. He doesn't enforce himself. He doesn't force himself upon us. He, he waits for our engaging with him. Sort of. And I, I think we were using this. He's, just, he's knocking at the door, guys. Come on, we've got to let him in. Just let him in. Remember, this is Jesus who has all authority and all power. He can kick the door down. Remember when, when, he, was, when he was in his resurrected body before he ascended, he's walking through walls. I mean, he, he doesn't need to, I'm just waiting. My people, don't be here. My, getting, come on, let me in. But we get this weird concept that he's doing. No, he can break the door down. And you know what? When we pray, we're asking for the Jesus to break the doors down, right? We're asking for the Jesus who's, we don't want, hey, Lord, would you just knock on my unbelieving family's heart? We just knock. We don't pray like that. How do we pray? Bash it in, God. Interrupt and intercept the thoughts of self-sufficiency. Save them. And we should pray that way. So what is Jesus getting at here? Because it's confusing. What's the image? Jesus is not, de- he's not dependent upon our action of letting him in. He has all authority and he does whatever he wants. What is he demonstrating? I think his posture of knocking is, is the reminder of his persistent call through his spirit to go deeper in fellowship with us. Jesus is all sovereign and God is working his all powerful and all consuming will. But he's reminding us that we have responsibility in our relationship with him. He's reminding the Laodicean believers they have responsibility. And just like Adam and Eve had one parameter to obey in a perfect place with perfect bodies, why did they have that one parameter? So they knew that their relationship with God was real. 
So Jesus comes to all of his disciples. We have responsibility in our relationship with God to help us understand that our relationship with God is real. He comes all the way to us. He's it's like he's holding us up like a child and our arms are down. And we finally go, okay, I'll hug now. But he keeps on coming. He keeps on coming with he's 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 always at the door saying, I want to go deeper with you. Will you go deeper with him? That's what he's asking. Will you go deeper? So we answer the door and we let him in and look, fellowship. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and he eat with him and he with me. That is Oh, first century, especially in Hebrew culture, this is not like a polite 45 minute, 45 minute meal because we've got to get on to something else. This was like five and six hours long. This is like Abraham. Oh, let's kill an animal and we'll prepare it. That takes a minute, right? We've got we to gotta make sure it's prepared and clean and then it's got to cook. But what are we doing? We're enjoying one another. That's, that's the concept of Jesus saying, abide in me. Abide, just be with me. So, friends, where is Jesus in your world? Where is Jesus? Look, the one, here's the promise. The one who keeps on going, seated on the Father's throne as he is on the Father's throne. We saw in the letter to the, to the Philadelphian church that we have crowns that we are to wear today. But no one sees your crown. But there's an authority and a, 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 a posture that we live under the king of all kings, but we also reign with him in this life. We don't want to do an over-realized aspect of what that means, but we also don't want to do an under-realized. We trust him. We trust him. And look, when you sit on a throne, what do you own? Everything. Right? When you sit on a throne, you own everything. So Jesus is saying, don't go after all that stuff. Don't trust in wealth. Don't trust in your appearance. And do not trust in man-made attempts to provide healing. Now, don't please feel like I need to... I took Advil this morning because I had a headache. I mean, I'm not saying we never do that. It's where our trust is. I, God, thank you for the common grace that I can take Advil. and alleviates the pressure in my head so I can preach like I want. So, amen. But Lord, you have so much more for us amen. to experience as we trust you and as we look toward you and as we want to fellowship with you and we take time. See, living for eternity seeks to order our lives around the mission of Jesus' preeminence to be first in everything. And look, the waters that came into Laodicea were lukewarm. What do we have in us as believers? John 7, verses 37 and 38. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So many times we're looking for water sources in our lives, not recognizing that when the time we spend with Jesus, it flows from us. It's refreshing. 
when we're spiritually weary. And it is healing when we are spiritually wounded. We look to Jesus over and over. He says that he said this of the spirit that was to come and fill all of his people. We have living waters. Let's tap into it. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your persistent, loving, never-ending pursuit of us that calls to us and says, know me, know me. Come into deeper fellowship with me. Trust me. Lord, I I pray that we would feel the the settling influence, the, the settling of your presence in our hearts. So, so you are all we see. That's really what we ask. We only want to see you. wonder at 
Obedience to go and make disciples, it starts small. It doesn't start with tent revivals. It starts with small conversations. So let's be open to how the Lord would use us this week with small conversations. Your children, you're making disciples of your children, your coworkers, your family, your neighbors. Let's not be daunted by the enormity of the commission, but recognize how the Spirit gives us power in the small open doors of the commission. So we're reminded, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Amen. Amen. God bless you.